Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Joel Schobert. Hey, everyone. And Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're talking to Marcel Petipa. That was pretty good, actually, Charles. I, I have to give you some some high marks. It's Petipa. You were very close. Petipa. Yeah, I, I kind of grabbed the French angle. And yeah. Nicely cool. done. So do you want to just introduce yourself real quick? I mean, we had a little chat, but... Yeah, so my name is Marcel, and I am the CEO of a company called Parakeeto, and we help small agencies, creative shops, dev shops, and freelancers run more profitably, make more money with the work that they do, and make their business more scalable. And that's been my focus for the last few years. Make more money with the work you do. That, that sounds like something people might be interested in. What do you think, Joel? Yeah, that sounds like a winner. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So, so what's the secret? Well, essentially, the secret is to think about the fact that when you sell services and you need to use your time or another human being's time to sell, like to actually deliver what you promised to your client, your margin depends on how efficiently you can earn that revenue, i.e. how much time it actually takes you to do the thing. Mm. And I think that that is a trap that a lot of small agencies and freelancers fall into is they think of their revenue as the same, you know, kind of revenue that a product company might have. And they think of their margin is something that's fixed. And the reality is that your margin is very much elastic. And you might not feel that as much when it's just you doing the work. But as soon as you try to scale and get out from being the only person in the business that can earn revenue, it starts to bite you in the butt pretty quickly. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that. The other thing that I'm looking at as far as this goes is for me, as far as like thinking about revenue and stuff goes, at least in the podcasting businesses, I kind of think of and I know it's a mental trap, but I do it anyway, is I think of it almost like a bucket I have to fill up, right? And so once I have enough, and instead, yeah, realizing that, you know what, if if we can produce more podcasts, or, you know, find more sponsors, or fill more spots, or, you know, whatever, right, then then we can get more done. And then if I can bring more team members on to pick up more of the slack, you know, that here or there, free up my time so I can go do those kinds of activities. Yeah, I, I, I definitely hear what you're saying there. I think that it's easy to fall into that trap too, right? Because I think most freelancers, especially, or even small agencies, they started off by a person kind of splitting off on their own and saying, I'm going to do my own thing. And a lot of the agencies that I talked to, it's that was the beginning of their agency. And then they just had too much work coming in. So they had to bring in their friends to help them with it. And next thing you know, they have a business. And of course, when you start that journey, you're, you're generally leaving an income. And now you have to pay your rent and you know, mm -hmm. get groceries and make sure your kids have clothes on their back and whatnot. And so you now have overhead that you need to meet. And then as you start to like grow your small agency, that overhead gets higher and higher. And increasingly, we kind of get into this mode where we're always thinking about how can I bring in 10 grand a month this month, right? How can I bring in 15 right. grand next month so I can pay that overhead? And we're not at all thinking about how efficiently are we going to be able to earn that revenue? We're just taking whatever we can get because we're trying to meet that minimum requirement. And I yep. think that's the reason that a lot of small agencies or freelancers get stuck and hit a growth ceiling where they can't grow past it because they're, they feel like they're experiencing starvation, but what they're actually experiencing is indigestion. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely in the camp of, you know, and, and that was the bucket analogy, right? Is, yeah, I've got to make 10 
you know, 10 grand to pay my overhead. And then, and then what, right? And then we're like, well, anything we make over that is profit. That's crazy. That's great. But we're not thinking about like, well, you know, maybe this project that I just took on is going to take me way more time than, you know, yeah. and, and that there's an opportunity cost. And that's the thing that we don't really often think about is what is the opportunity cost of taking on work that is going to be significantly less efficient to earn versus, you know, taking on things that we know we can get mm -hmm. done very efficiently. So that's, I think the first key, right, is we have to actually start to pay attention to what is the gap in efficiency between the different types of work we're doing? And then what are the levers we can pull to make that work more efficient, make ourselves or our business or the process that we use more efficient in terms of how we earn revenue. And when we do that, well, then we set ourselves up to be able to scale and to be able to do so profitably and to be able to cash flow our own growth and really kind of become in charge of our destiny, so to speak. Right. So, so how do you do that then? How do you become more efficient at these kinds of things? <laughs> Well, so there's two levers to pull. And the one that everybody likes to talk about is raise your prices. And that conversation, you know, happens in the industry. And I would argue that most people probably do have the opportunity to raise their prices, but it's always it's not always that simple, right? It's not always that simple to move up market. It's not always that simple to raise your price on the market that you're selling to. Maybe mm -hmm. they have price sensitivity that just doesn't align to what you kind of want to charge. And so the other lever is to look at, how much time does it take us to earn this and or what is the time that we're investing in earning this cost us, right? So we can, there's kind of two ways to think about that. We can do it in less time or we can find someone to do some of these things that cost less than us or somebody else on our team. And of course, the starting point for that, especially for those that are listening that are technical, which is I think a lot of you, is to start thinking about this in terms of data. Because there is going to be a set of assumptions that we make when we quote a job, whether we're saying we're going to build them hourly or we're going to build them a flat rate or we're going to build based on value. There's a set of assumptions that we make there about how much time it's going to take us. And very few people actually take the time to map out and track how much time it actually took them so that they can go back and get a feedback loop on where the gap is between their assumptions and reality. And the first step to becoming consistently efficient and earning revenue is to understand where those gaps are so that we can actually make an educated, data-driven decision about where we're going to invest in trying to optimize those processes or increase those prices, like where we're going to pull those levers. So that's really the first step is formalize the way that you capture your assumptions or your estimations about mm -hmm. projects, and then set up a way to track whether those assumptions are accurate or not. Sounds simple. Very few people do it. Even very few agencies at scale are doing this well. Yeah, if that makes sense. Running, if someone's running a one-person shop and most of their work is hourly, does some of this still apply or is that a case where it's just kind of you're on a fixed track? Yeah, so I think if you're running a one-person shop and you're doing this thing hourly, then there's a couple things to think about, right? The first is if you're going to continue to scale and you're going to continue to charge hourly, which by the way, if you do extremely complex stuff, like you're building custom software, hourly might be the right pricing model for you. I know there's a lot of narrative in the industry about like, you've got to move to value-based pricing, you've got to move to flat rates. And I think if you have an extremely complex thing that you're doing, and we all know that estimating complex software projects is like really hard to do well, no matter how experienced you are, then you might need to mitigate your risk by going to more of an hourly model. So then what you need to start thinking about is 
it's still important to start to understand how well you can kind of scope things out or at least how well you can manage that time. And then you want to start thinking about gross margin because at some point, if you want to get away from doing the work yourself and be able to get somebody else doing that work, then you need to meet a certain gross margin threshold for that to scale and for you to be able to cash flow your business. And the gross margin target that you typically want to aim for is anywhere from 50 to 70%. So the way that you calculate that is you take your adjusted gross income. So in this case, it's whatever amount of money that this client is paying to you that belongs to you right? So you want to remove things that are passed through. So if you have to pay for software licenses, or you have to pay for stock footage, or, you know, any number of things, website templates, libraries, things like that, that's money that, you know, doesn't belong to you. It's not your responsibility to earn that money. It's passing through you as a vendor. So you want to take your adjusted gross income. So what you have after all that stuff is paid for, and you want to remove your direct labor costs. And the way that you calculate direct labor costs, if you have a contractor, it's what you pay them per hour or what you pay them per week divided by the number of hours that they work in that week. If it's a salaried employee, you take their full salary plus benefits and you divide it by 2,080 hours, which is the number of hours in a 52-week, 40-hour-per-week working year. And that gives you a sense of like, what does it cost the business for every hour that we put into this project. And if you can bill enough that your margin is 50 to 70%, then that is a scalable model. And you can grow Mm -hmm. on that. And you can have enough money to pay for overhead and your lawyers and your accountants and pay yourself a salary at scale and still net out with a business that's realistic, that's making a decent bottom line, and that can cash flow its own growth. So if you're in this position, this is the simple thing that you want to start paying attention to. Start evaluating, am I charging enough to be able to get that kind of a margin if I had enough work coming in that I could start hiring people to do it for me? Right. Well, you're talking to the right audience here because you've got people that (laughs) love numbers. Yeah. And I mean, this is refreshing because most of the time uh, that I talk about this stuff, I'm talking to creative agency owners, they're designers, they're marketers, and they're not generally as excited to uh, dig into the spreadsheets and and analyze this stuff. Yeah, no kidding. So just to take it, break it down even more simply. So if somebody was right now working, let's say full time, use a Mm -hmm. super nice round number, we'll make the math simple. Let's say Mm -hmm. they were making 100,000 a year in salary and then got some benefits on top of that. Mm-hmm. So let's just guess maybe 130 loaded. Mm-hmm. Then if they went and were going to set themselves up, the target they'd be shooting for, for 50 to 70%, they'd be shooting for a minimum of a gross in after subtracting their, their cost of doing business of 30, uh, sorry, 130 divided by 70%. So maybe like 170 or so. Is that, is that how the numbers would work in that case? So if we actually think about the hourly cost, right? So if they are billing hourly, their minimum would be 125 up to, yeah, probably somewhere around $150, $170 an hour. So that would be kind of the the place that you want to play in. And I think that one of the things that's really important to pay attention to here is your effective billable rate or your average billable rate versus your rate. Because even when you're billing hourly, we all know that there's lots of situations where we mess something up or we got to do duplicative work or there's hours that we're not billing the client for. And so we want to actually figure out what is our actual billable rate, not just what we're saying to the client, not just what we're putting on the invoice, but when we factor in all of the time that it took us to manage this client, including stuff that doesn't make it to the timesheet, what does it cost us and what's our actual rate? And that's what we want to base this margin on because we have to consider what is the complete cost in terms of time, in terms of actual money of having this relationship with the client and getting work done for them. Right. So yeah, that's where we start. Yeah. So once a person starts there, if they're at that point, then... I guess 
from there, they've got enough cash flow or enough margin that you can start to hire out some of the work you need done, or it gives you the flexibility. Is that the basic idea to kind of get to the first rung on the ladder, really? Yeah, that's essentially the premise. And then from there, you know, of course, the backbone of that is having a pipeline that, you know, can sustain your, you know, increased work. So there's kind of two ways to think about it. And my advice generally is when you're first starting out, and you haven't really proven out your, you know, business growth strategy, you haven't really figured out like one channel that you can, you know, repeatedly get customers through, then it's makes sense to start with an elastic workforce. So contractors, freelancers that you're probably going to have a little bit of a lower margin on, but you don't have to pay for them while you don't have any work sitting around. You can bring them on as you need them and then you can kind of let go of them as you don't. But then of course, once you get to a place where you know you can bring in enough work to keep that role busy, then you want to look at hiring that person full-time because your margin will generally be higher, right? The Mm -hmm. dev that you might have to pay $100 or $125 an hour to work on your client's stuff, you might be able to just employ them for hundred grand a year full-time and that you know, cuts that cost per hour down in half. So as long as you know, you can keep them utilized at, you know, 65, 70% a year, then you know, you're good, you know, that you can make a good margin on that hire. That makes sense. So how do you measure this, right? Because it's one thing, it's one thing to figure out, okay, they cost me, you know, so many dollars per per person that I have around, right? But it's a little bit different when you're tracking hours and, you know, some of these other things where it's not, you know, I'm not billing it against a client. If it's other work that I'm doing in my agency, I may not even track it at all, right? You know, I may not track my time, you know, and, and that may be a factor in what it costs to run whatever project. So, yeah, well, what do you recommend as far as the ability to, yeah, to keep track of this stuff so that you can figure out what that number is that it's actually costing you to to run the project? Yeah. So to me, there's two ways to do this, right? There's one, which is looking at it in the accounting tool and actually looking at gross margin and for most of the people listening, that's probably not the best option. You know, you got to have a bookkeeping cadence on that. It's going to be maybe a little more cumbersome. You could do it in a spreadsheet if you wanted to. But, you know, the idea there is you would be, you'd have some time tracking. If it's just you, then it's fairly simple. If you've got a couple people on the team, you've got to look at what they're actually costing you. And then based on their salary, and the time that they're working, you have to allocate that to specific projects. So I, I don't mm-hmm. recommend that really until you've got some level of scale to the business that you're working. The simplest way to do this, I, and the way that I like to do it, is kind of looking at your average billable rate across projects. And this is a really simple math equation. You basically take what your adjusted gross income was, you divide it by the amount of hours that it took you to do that work. And that gives you an average billable rate. So of course, this requires you to track your time. But I think one thing I want to make really clear is that you don't need to use timesheets to track your time. You can use a resource plan, right? That just kind of says, I worked on this project from Monday to Wednesday. And then I worked on this other project Thursday and Friday. And you can just kind of like, the numbers don't have to be exact. They can be you know, 80% accurate, but it's still going to give you some directionally accurate data about roughly what your margin looks like, roughly, you know, what the gap is between this type of work versus that type of work or this client versus that client. And that's really what we're trying to use this data to get insight on, right? Is like, where are the directional trends? Where are the obvious gaps? Where are the patterns that are emerging with regards to where we are and aren't efficient at earning revenue so that we have a place of objective information to start to make like decisions on about where we're going to invest our time and energy and either increasing margins or starting to outsource more things or developing better processes. And at scale, you know, the the way that we continue this kind of feedback loop is, you know, we start with 
having you know one efficiency metric that we look at. So it could be gross margin, or in this case, like I said, I'm recommending average billable rate. And then we pull a report on a cadence. Maybe it's every two weeks, maybe it's every month. And we look at, okay, here's what went really well. Here's what didn't go well. And if we're at the scale where we have a team, then we sit down with the team on that cadence and say, why did this stuff go so well? And why did this stuff not go well? What ideas do you guys have for us to do the stuff that went well more often? And what do we think we need to correct in order to avoid these things that didn't go well happening again? And that informs process changes, processes for how we estimate, process for how we do the work, process for how we organize ourselves as a team, how we sell, how we position, right? All that kind of really qualitative feedback is going to come from the soft kind of conversations with the team. The quantitative feedback is going to inform what kind of questions we ask so that we can extract the most important information, the best opportunities from those conversations and feed into a backlog. And when I, it's funny, when I run this process with agencies, we treat it like a product development sprint. We, we have ideas that surface from those conversations. We put them in a backlog. We run two-week sprints. We implement those process changes. And the team is very much empowered to prioritize those things, take ownership of them, implement them, maintain them, and so on. And that process has worked extremely well for us and for our clients. Makes sense. So yeah, yeah. One and one thing I want to mention around average billable rate is that you know obviously it's a pretty simple number to figure out how much money do we make, how much time did it take us, and then mm-hmm. you know again you can kind of figure out what your margin is just based on what does it roughly cost us per hour, you know, to run the business. What does our average employee cost per hour come out to? And again, you want to be targeting like a two to two point five x multiple on that to make sure that you've got the margin that you need to scale and that you're efficient. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. Makes sense. So I I guess I'm just trying to figure out how to adapt this to what I'm doing because our focus is a little bit different, you know, with the podcast and things like that. But, you know, as we bring in, because I have produced podcasts for other people off and on over the last, you know, several years. So yeah, just figuring out what that looks like as well. And okay, you know, yeah, how much work did we get done? How long did it take us? And then yeah, how can we make this more efficient? How often is it something like moving people to different seats within the organization versus bringing somebody on who can take on certain responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, this is a big one with regards to, especially when you're starting out and you're a freelancer or you're you know, a couple of pals that are working together and you've kind of got this small shop going and you want to scale it up. And this, this is the biggest challenge that I see early on is trying to remove yourself from doing client work because your perception, right, is like if I'm, you know, a great developer or a great designer or what mm-hmm. have you, and I can just do the work, then that doesn't cost us anything. But the reality is at some point you need to pay yourself a salary and ideally you need to pay yourself a market salary. And so at some point it becomes more expensive for you to do the work in a sense, like with opportunity cost, than to have somebody else do it. Now that requires you to have another place where you can invest your time that's going to get you a higher return. So often there's two or three places where you could be investing that time. The first is in actually developing a system to get more business for the shop or for your freelance business, right? So like actually going out doing business development, booking meetings, getting on podcasts, like whatever your top of funnel channel thing is, 
The second is building processes in mm-hmm. your business so that you can actually more consistently get results to your clients. You can be more efficient. You can scale your team you know, more easily and train them more easily and create clarity for them more easily. And then the third thing is actually building your talent pipeline and sourcing great people that can come in and help you service all the business that ideally you're creating by spending your time and energy there. And then if you are still doing client work, then ideally, if you've got the volume of work coming in, you're laddering yourself up to stuff that is actually at a pay grade that is relative to what you should be paying yourself at a market rate. So you're maybe not doing the $75 or $100 an hour tasks on client work. You're doing the $250, $300 an hour strategic work or like the high level architecture work or the you know, like you're consulting with the client and kind of getting, helping them get some of the high level spec out for their project or helping them identify Mm -hmm. the gaps and like that kind of stuff. If you are spending time on client work, which, you know, again, as you spend more time finding business and less time servicing it, you should spend less and less time doing that thing. And so the same is true for any kind of high leverage employees that you have. As you start to create some scale, it becomes less about you know, we just need to get this work done and I just need to sell enough revenue to cover everyone's salaries and more about like, where is the place where this person creates the most leverage and creates the most margin. But of course, the catch 22 with that is you have to have enough work coming in to actually have those changes and those tweaks have Mm -hmm. an impact. Because if your team's not utilized and you don't have enough work coming in, then none of that stuff matters. You know, it's like make, it's like unblocking a pipe that has no water running through it. You got to make sure that there's enough throughput for that optimization to actually materialize. Right. That makes sense. The the other question I have, so you're talking about writing up processes, which is something that I'm working on right now with, with my team. And the other side of it is just getting the feedback from people. And so I guess the question I have is, and, and you may just tell me, just make sure you have the right people, but how do I make sure I'm getting that kind of feedback from my team? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the first step is you need to ask them for it. But to get, that's, I know that's not a very helpful answer. So I want to talk about some of the nuance around this because I've seen a lot of folks mess this part up. And I think it's the most critical part of this kind of feedback loop that we talked about, right? With, you know, we, we capture our assumptions, we measure the reality, we talk to the team, and then we make process improvements. And when it comes to talking to the team, there's a couple of things that are easy to do that really kill the buy-in and that really kill mm-hmm. them being willing to put forward that feedback. The first is when we look at the data and we go into that meeting or that conversation with the team and we have an opinion and we share that right away. And you know, if we're the boss or we're the leadership team, then it, the team's not gonna feel confident telling you that they think you're wrong or surfacing a different idea. They're just sense. gonna kind of go along with that. So your job in that conversation is really to be a facilitator. And that means abstaining from introducing your ideas until it's absolutely necessary to unblock the group. And even in that case, we wanna be timid about it because the key to creating a buy-in with the team is to have them surface the ideas. Mm -hmm. And then even if you had that idea already, you want to be like, wow, that's an amazing idea. I really love that. Let's unpack that. Let's, you know, we get it unpacked, et cetera, et cetera. And then they're so much more likely to actually take ownership of that, go out and do the process. And then here's the important thing, actually follow the process, actually maintain the process, (laughs) right? Actually be willing to do the thing because they're not being told to do it. They said, hey, I think this could really make us more efficient. And you said, I think that's an amazing idea. What do we need to do to support you to kind of get that implemented so we can you know, have that happening in the business? So number one is be a facilitator and abstain from bringing in your own opinions. The second one is do not 
focus on people, focus on process. So one of the big mistakes I see is we go into this meeting and we're like, hey, Justin, you spent twice as much time on this project as we said you were supposed to. Why did you do that? That is not a very constructive way to get Justin to come <laughs> forward with recommendations about how we could have made that process more efficient. So maybe a more helpful way to bridge that conversation is say, hey, you know, we thought that this project was going to take, you know, 150 hours of QA and it ended up taking 250. Why did we think that happened? What came up that we weren't aware of? Was it something we scoped wrong? Was it something that happened during the product project? You know, what do you, what do you guys got for me? What kind of ideas do we have? And we want to focus on what was it about our process that was wrong and right. not what was it about our people that went wrong. And that is a much more inviting environment for people to actually surface their ideas. And then the third thing, and this one is easy to overlook, is these meetings have a tendency to get pushed back and these initiatives have a tendency to get pushed back when things get busy, right? So when we cancel this conversation and when we strip away the time that people are allotted to invest in, in creating these processes, mm -hmm. we send the message that this is not actually important. Their opinions aren't important. Their input isn't important. And investing in tools, systems, processes to make them more effective, more efficient, make their job easier is not important. So what we want right. to do at the onset is define a cadence for these conversations and a cadence for implementation that is sustainable, right? regardless of how much work is coming into the agency so we can protect a certain amount of that time and allow people to actually build momentum and progress around these things. So those would be the three keys that I have to give you around actually incentivizing the team to come on and talk about these things. And the final one that I'll say is we want to be clear about what it's going to do for them, right? What is the benefit they're going to get out of this? And in most scenarios, it's going to be a couple of things. Number one, the business is going to be more successful. So whether you have, maybe you bonus your team based on profit at the end of the year, or you don't, but at the end of the day, if the business has more money, theoretically, you can afford to pay them maybe a little bit better. You can afford to hire other smart people for them to work with. That might be important to them. Maybe you can put a foosball table or a kombucha tap in the office. Like, I don't know what your thing is, right? Maybe it's better stipends for their equipment. Maybe it's more training time. So like, the profitability of the business should benefit them in some way. They should be able to draw the line to that. And the second thing is less overtime work. Because if we can, you know, if you think about estimation as a graph, right? And on the graph, you have level of effort. And then on the other graph, you have what I call your scoping metrics, which is the questions you ask clients when they want to work with you that you're using to try and figure out like, what's this going to take? Like how much, how much work is this going to be? And maybe it's the number of web pages. Maybe it's the number of custom widgets on their thing. Maybe it's their, their budget, just like how much money they have to spend, right? Whatever that thing is, you're going to create a graph and then you're going to track your time and that's going to put data points in the graph. And then eventually there's a relationship line that gets formed there, which is like for every X scoping metric, for every number of web pages, it adds this much additional effort mm -hmm. to the project. And everyone is doing this in their head when they're estimating, right? Like we all do this. so you can actually build that graph and, and put some data behind. And this is what our software product does, right? So if you can imagine the distribution of data points goes on there, we create a line of best fit. Process puts some rails on that and starts to push the distribution of those data points towards the line of best fit. So that over time, right. your ability to say 10 web pages means this much effort gets more and more reliable. And that means you can scope accurately. And that means that when the deadline's not elastic, but the amount of work that goes into the project is, is that you're less likely to force your team into absorbing that on evenings and weekends and working slammers to get something done on time. And that is probably the most significant benefit to them is guess what guys, 
no more late Friday nights, no more working on weekends. Like we want to try and reduce that by making the work we do more predictable by giving you guys better systems to be more efficient. And it's also going to allow us to hire at the right time and train people quicker so that you don't have to absorb the slack when we get busy or when we have overruns and things like that. So communicate those benefits to them. That's going to be super critical in helping them actually create buy-in in this whole process and want to be involved right. and want to share their ideas. You know, when you're talking about the couple things that could make a team kind of like adopt this and then maybe drop it or go backwards, one of them was getting too busy. I've seen this at a couple of places I've worked, even just as a full-time employee. And it seems like if people are booked to 100%, it's everything becomes like a little brittle, like anything unexpected kind of just makes all these ping pong balls are shooting around and stuff is kind of difficult. What do you tell people about kind of the ideal loading rate for staff? I mean, yeah. should you have to be a hundred percent farmed out to client work? Right. So the, the question here, this is an interesting question. I think a lot of it depends on your business model, but the one thing I'll say about this is if you have to have your employees 80, 90, a hundred percent utilized to make ends meet, to make a margin, then the, your business model is, is not good, right? It's, it's going to be, broken. So you either need to find a way to charge more money or find a way to become more efficient. But ideally, you should be able to hit your margin goal in your business with a 65% utilization rate on a net annual basis. So that means at the end of the year, after your devs have taken their weekends off and had vacation and you've thrown an office party and you've allotted some time for education and, and upskilling and all that good stuff and internal projects, if they can hit 65% utilization, you should be able to make a decent margin on their salary. Ideally, 2.5x what you've paid them. That's the amount of revenue they should have been able to earn, you know, over the course of the year at a 65% okay. utilization. And I would not target anything higher than 80% net on an annual basis. If your people are 80% utilized on an annual basis after their weekends and vacations and so on, then you're probably working them too hard. And that's, I mean, that's what I'll say about that. Now, with all of that said, there is certainly a case for if you have a business model that is such that, you know, an employee can come in and work on a one project day in and day out for one client for six months at a time, then they're going to naturally be utilized at a higher rate. But again, you don't want to set that expectation necessarily. Like most agencies that I talk to, they're going to have their team doing anywhere from 30 to maybe 36 hours of billable work per week. The rest of that time is going to go into, you know, actually internal meetings, education, internal projects, things like that. So I would not try to set an expectation or a scenario where the business is unsustainable unless people are doing more than that, because then to your point, this stuff is going to fall through the cracks and it's going to be extremely difficult to maintain these kinds of things. And you're going to end up in this, the same trap that a lot of agencies end up in, which is like, we're too busy to work on the business, but the business isn't going to get better <laughs> unless we work on it, right. but it's a catch 22. Great question. So what exactly does Parakeetu do? So quite simply, we help agencies and small service businesses create data-driven estimates based on their historical projects. So to draw an example, if somebody came to me and said, hey, I need you to build me a website, I could go in and pick five websites that we've done before that smell similar, and it would do exactly what I described earlier, it would draw a line of best fit based on the effort and in our case, the budget of those past websites. And then it will break it down by each task that we've tracked time against. So in our case, it would say, here's how many project management hours it took you on these five projects. And here's how your current estimate compares to those projects and compares to your line of best fit. And same thing for development and same thing for design and things, same thing for QA. So basically it helps you 
bring all this data into a workspace to create accurate data-driven estimates. And then, of course, what we're working on for the continuation of that is helping you understand how those estimates held up in the real world versus the amount of time it actually took you so that we can essentially build you your own algorithm that accounts for all the biases that we, of course, consciously or unconsciously introduce into that process. Very cool. I like to think so. All right. Well, I don't know if I have any other questions. Do you, Joel? No, that was great. Good stuff. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Before we do that, though, Marcel, are you on social media anywhere where people can ask you questions? Or I am. Yeah. If you want to find me on the internet, I'm on LinkedIn. That's a great place to connect with me. I'm also on Facebook and, of course, at the Agency Profit Podcast as well. If you want to listen to some of the content that we create around this kind of stuff, we nerd out about numbers and economics of service businesses all the time. So if you're feeling nerdy, come check us out. Good deal. You want to put those links in the chat? We'll get them in the show notes. Will do. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Joel, do you have some stuff you want to shout out about? Yeah, so I've done different kinds of martial arts over the years, just kind of as sport and exercise and stuff. And now I don't have really enough time for it. But given the current situations and stuff, I looked for something that was just focused on like how to how to get away, basically, <laughs> like, a, like a, a runaway kind of martial art. And it turns out there is one. There's an Israeli martial art, Krav Maga, that is made to hit somebody and then run. And what's funny is when you're actually practicing in class, you do a strike, look around for somebody else trying to get you, and you need to take three steps away. And if you don't complete the three steps, they have you repeat it again. So I love this because running away is part of every move you do. And so it's supposed to be like literally the most effective in the shortest amount of time to learn some basic street skills. So I've been taking that. And the lady who owns our studios here in Minneapolis is really good. She's actually adapted to some of them like purse snatchings or getting pulled out of your car and various kind of situations. Oh, wow. So she kind of, yeah, she kind of adapts to like what's going on, at least around Minneapolis and stuff, stuff that might be related to, you know, current events. So yeah, it's been it's been a good time. It takes a lot less time to get some basic skills and it's been fun stuff. Cool. Remind me not to try and snatch your purse, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can hit hard once and then you'd see me running away. That'd be, that'd be about how it'd go. <laughs> yeah, just the name Krav Maga makes me think. Yeah, anyway, I always assumed that it was something more along the lines of, you know, I come up and with my little finger put you on the ground. So it's, I know it sounds kind of Klingon, doesn't it? Yeah, something like that. 
that's awesome. Yeah. All right. I'm going to throw in some picks. So first of all, I am, I just finished the Lightbringer series by Brent Weeks. It's a fantasy book series. Really, really well done. I have really, really enjoyed that book series. So I'm going to shout out about it and let people know that they have to go get it. And then the other pick that I have is I'm working on the podcasting course. You can get that at podcastplaybook.co. Like I said, I've been documenting the processes. The other end of that is, is I've been trying to document them in a way where other people can use them to grow their shows. So if you're interested in something like that, you have a podcast and you're kind of stuck or trying to figure out how to grow it or things like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on putting that together. I'm also working on the podcast playbook bootcamp, which is more for my friends because I have a few friends that run businesses, you know, like one of my really good friends is a realtor and you know, he's trying to pull together like a mastermind group for realtors to help them, you know, grow their businesses Anyway, so I, I've been trying to put some information together for him to help him start his podcast as he launches his business, because I think that's a great way to get people's attention and yeah, just kind of own that arena. So anyway, podcastplaybook.co. Marcel, what are your picks? So I've got a few. The first is a tool that we have started to use feverishly as a remote team at Parakeeto that I absolutely love that I think everyone should check out. It's called Miro or Miro, I don't know, tomato, tomato, but it's spelled M-I-R-O. And it's basically the, it's the best virtual whiteboard I've ever used. Like if you're the kind of person that likes to doodle, use sticky notes to ideate and draw out ideas and elaborate on your thoughts. This is the experience that I have found most conducive to my nature in, in working in that way. And it's great for collaborating. To summarize, Miro, it's a virtual whiteboard. It's amazing. It's super easy to use, especially if you collaborate with people virtually or you just need a digital workspace to kind of use as your whiteboard. Highly recommend you check it out. The second thing I'll talk about is a book that I just finished reading called The Design of Everyday Things. It's a classic. And I think it's one that especially if you're a very technical person would behoove you to check out. And it really just talks about the fundamentals of good design in whatever it is that you're building, whether it's a desk or a piece of software or a digital product, and just some really great insights into how to think about good design, how to assess design. And you will not look at anything in the world the same way after you read this book, whether it's a door or a product or something else. So highly recommend that book. And I guess the last thing that I'll shout out, and it's it's a personal plug, so edit this out if it's not appropriate, but we have a toolkit that we recently created to help agencies with all the stuff that we talked about today and freelancers. And it's got a great cheat sheet on it with all the metrics that we track with our clients, including gross margin and average global rate and all the stuff I talked about on the show, including the formulas and the benchmarks to aim for. So if you want to check that out, you can head to paraketo.com forward slash toolkit hopefully it will be helpful given the context of what we talked about today. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, definitely. If that's a resource that's out there for people, I, I'd love to put that stuff out there. Some people are weird about, hey, we've got this thing that we put together. But my feeling is, is that if it'll help people out, you know, let's do it. I've also been working on, I don't have it ready yet, but uh, just a freelancer's basically tool guide. And so, you know, it's going to have different tools like accounting software and task management software and, you know, stuff like that, time tracking software. I don't have estimation tools on my list of things to put in there. So I'll have to... Not a lot of them I'll, exist. I'll have to get you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, can name, I can name two, including yours. So yeah. You have it. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming, Marcel. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I hope everyone got a little bit of value out of it.
Yeah, absolutely. I think it gives people a good way of working a benchmark and then saying, okay, this is where we're at. This is where we need to be at. And then start some strategies for bringing their team into the process and saying, all right, how do we get to where we need to be in order to keep you happily employed for the rest of your life? (laughs) Exactly. All right, good deal. We'll wrap up here. Till next time, folks, max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.